Hello and welcome to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians. The program made possible by our friends at Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. Welcome everyone, it's the Thursday morning edition. Brendan Telfer back in the Bendigo Bank studio with you this uh, Thursday morning. Hope you're doing okay. Well this week on the program, dementia. And as we live longer, dementia, a condition we're going to have to confront and more regularly. And a Monash University pilot study down here on the Mornington Peninsula is going to help us fill in a lot of the pieces that we don't know about this horrendous uh, affliction. For example, now we're told that about 400,000 people are living with dementia, but that number is expected to triple by 2050. Now, this is based on a guesstimate, so to speak. Well, what we're trying to do is develop methods to use routinely collected health information to more accurately know what the number of people living with dementia are. Monash University Professor Valandi Shrikanth, our special guest on the age stage a little bit later on this morning. Also this week, Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia. We catch up with Warren on the very latest. And also LP Records. Remember them? Are you old enough to remember the lovely, long musical art form? Well, apparently it might be a bit of a dying art. We have a special BBC report. You're on Audible PFM. And this is The Age Stage. It's Thursday morning. So first up on The Age Stage this week, it's time to welcome back to The Age Stage Paul Verstige, who is, of course, the policy coordinator of the Combined Pensioners and Superannuates Association based up in Sydney. Paul, it's been a little while since we last spoke to you, but I must say you and your organisation certainly seem to set the news agenda a couple of weeks ago about uh, deeming and uh, franking credits for some of our superannuates. It was an issue that you were pushing very hard and it seemed like the rest of the media cycle eventually caught up with you. Well, yes, the deeming rate was was a bit of a bugbear for us Um, um, and we've been trying for a while now to to get some clarity on how these deeming rates are set and, um, yeah, the issue took off, so to speak. It certainly did. So just remind us quickly why um, our friends that are superannuates are being done out of uh, money in terms of deeming rates. Well, um, it's important to realise that, first up, um, before the uh, the latest reduction in the deeming rates, only a, a quarter of all pensioners and part pensioners were, um, were affected. It's, uh, if you are a self-funded retiree, by definition, you are not affected by deeming rates. You have to be a part pensioner. It's all hinged, isn't it, on the uh, interest rates. As the interest rates go down, it means that the differential between what people would expect to earn and what they are actually earning is quite substantial. Yes, the deeming rates uh, work um, in, in assessing people's income on the basis of uh, a fictional, uh, fictional income. It's not real. So it's important that the deeming rates do not exceed and not higher than the actual interest rates. And that's, of course, the, uh, been the problem. The thing to remember is that it's more complicated than it seems. Uh, to make $8,000 in, in deemed interest from 1%, you would need $800,000 in savings. So basically, Paul, the issue is, as far as those retirees that are affected by the the legislation and and, and deeming calculations, there is certainly this differential between um, interest rates and what they can 
theoretically earn. And at the moment, it certainly works against the retirees. Is there anything in prospect that looks like the government is taking this on board and is going to do something about redressing the situation? Well, there are alternatives to using deeming rates uh, to assess income, obviously. Uh, the, uh, the simplest thing to do would be to assess people according to their actual income. Um, and technically, that is, uh, that is, that is possible. Uh, there is uh, a thing called data matching, uh, which makes it very easy for, for, um, for government agencies to, uh, to find out um, how much interest, how much, how much in dividends you've been paid and assess you accordingly. So, so what, do you think there's any, um, any thirst there for the government to go pursue this new method of assessment? Or do you think they're going to be uh, basically uh, tied to the old deeming system? Well, they are tied to the old deeming system because it, it works very well for people who don't put their money in cash investments in term deposits. If you are in shares and you are getting a, a return of, say, between somewhere between 5 and 7% a year, for that income to be deemed as if you had made 3% is quite a good deal. And, um, you know, a lot of park pensioners are getting that very good deal. So that makes it hard for the government to, uh, to abolish deeming rates altogether. But it's obviously front and centre at the moment. You've made it so. I mean, it seemed like the news cycle here in Australia really picked up on a couple of observations that you were making about a month or so ago. Yes. I mean, the, the issue for us was that the deeming rates were set in a way or are set in a way that are completely arbitrary. Um, it, it simply depends on, on the whim of the government of the day or as to what they're going to do. That's what set us off on a course to, to discover how they were set. And then, of course, um, it's, uh, it's such an attractive issue to, to, to look at a deeming rate of uh, three and a quarter percent and see that... that um, that term deposit rates uh, are 2% and, and, and get up a story of, um, of, of people being uh, cheated out of money. Indeed, the, the, you know, we, we saw it uh, dripping with injustice across a lot of the big broadsheets here in Australia, but obviously the government has certainly um, got, uh, got the attention now, or certainly the attention has been brought to the government in terms of deeming rates. Um, now, a couple of other things that you've raised recently, of course, is very quickly, Paul, pension of family home is already asset tested. Please, Craig Kelly, keep your hands off the uh, the family home for asset testing. Yes, it's a, it's a little known fact. Or, you know, there's not many people realise that if you don't own your own home, uh, you can actually have, I think it's 210,000 more in assets before you before you get um, your, your pension reduced, then you can have two hundred and ten thousand dollars more before you lose the, the pension altogether. So in that way, the family home is already in the uh, the pension means test. And of course, this issue comes up time and time again that pensioners live in million dollar homes and um, that they should sell their homes and, and basically spend it on groceries. That's the argument. It's uh, it's it's very disingenuous. And uh, it needs to be treated with a lot more uh, sophistication, and certainly with respect for the people that have um, that have worked hard to to earn their own homes. Absolutely, and you hear that uh, argument many, many times. And now, this other big issue that uh, you raised just in the last week or so, of course, is New Start, and 185,000 over 55s are on it. And uh, the new start rates, it looks like actually in the last 24 hours or so that the government is, is standing by its current new start rates, doesn't want to move it because the government is claiming that it's going to get people back into the workforce. 
Um, yes, well, particularly for, for particularly the, the people, uh, the 185,000 people who um, uh, are on Newstart that are <clears throat> that are over, over 55, the vast majority of those don't stand a chance in the in the labour market. So it's very disingenuous of the government to to say, well, the best form of welfare is a job, and these people should get off their bum. It doesn't work that way. Certainly not when you when you are older. And to give these people a payment which is designed to tide you over in between jobs um, is, uh, is is cruel and and should be uh, should be rectified. Well, I suppose the the rate that they're paying on a short term basis like that, if that's how it was originally designed, is probably fair enough. But really, as you say, many of these people seem to be in a long term situation. The likelihood of them ever getting a full time job is uh, minimal to say the least, and to confine them to such a small allowance uh, makes life pretty difficult. Yes, it, it, it does make it very difficult. And, uh, of course, Newstart has become you know, the fallback for, uh, for, for far too many people. It's, there are a lot of people with disabilities who, who really can't work, who have uh, medical certificates that, uh, that say so. And um, Centrelink and the Department of Human, Human Services simply does not want to accept that and puts them on Newstart. Well, indeed, but not only disabled Australians, but you know, able-bodied Australians as well. I mean, here at RPFM, for instance, we have some supremely qualified people who've got an extraordinary CV from their working lives and uh, are now with us on Newstart. It's extraordinary. Yes, um, and that's, that's another thing. I, I don't want to... Uh on, on the station, of course, uh, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of very, very valuable labour and work and expertise uh, made available to the community by people on Newstart, and the least we could do for people on Newstart is to make sure that they can actually uh, pay their bills and pay their groceries. Well, yeah, we're endeavouring to do that and help them as much as we can, but of course we're not for profit and uh, our turnover is minimal. But uh, anyway, we're here um, through the good graces of the the generosity of our local community. Um, Paul, fascinating. Uh, I'm back again. We've been away for a little while, so thank you very much indeed for bringing us up to speed on the H stage. Some big issues, of course, and it's always great to know that you're there as part of the um, policy coordination for the combined pensioners and superannuates to keep us up to speed on a couple of these big ticket items. We thank you very much indeed for your time today. Thank you. Paul Aziz, thank you very much indeed. And uh, Paul, a regular guest here on RPPFM. We'll be catching up with him very, very soon. You're tuned up to RPPFM. Great to have your company. The Age Stage is the program uh, that we're presenting here today, each and every Thursday across the Mornington Peninsula and well and truly beyond as well. Always great to welcome Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia to the studios. Warren, welcome back. G'day, Brendan. Um, a lot been happening. I've been away for a couple of weeks. A lovely Cheryl's been looking after things here and is also uh, producing, of course, the program these days. But um, mm. in our absence, we have catch up and have our usual little chats and quite a lot really has been happening in the sector. First of all, Aftercare Australasia, the expansion continues. You're looking for staff <laughs> and you're recruiting and you're hiring. Where do I sign on the dotted line? <laughs> Ah, well, I don't know, Bryn. It depends on whether you've got the appropriate skills. No, 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 no. You don't don't want me administering pharmaceuticals or bedside manners or anything like that. And look, I guess uh, that's that's one of the things that we've got to uh, at the moment. So as you could imagine, there's a lot of demand for workforce at the moment, particularly here on the peninsula. And, uh, you know, we, we're having this steady stream of people looking for home care packages from us, so we're, we're needing to scale up. So um, what we're doing in response to that, 
um, is we're, we're actually really expanding our traineeship program again. It's it's something we've done in the past uh, very very successfully, and uh, uh, we had had some some partnerships with registered training organisations to deliver um, you know nationally recognised certificate three qualifications in in age and disability care. Um, but uh, you know, as these things happen, we we sort of didn't have the the need for it for a while there, and perhaps there was, a, as you were aware, there was a little bit of um, disruption going on a few years back in the registered training organisation space, and we sort of got caught in the crossfire of that. But since then, we've established a terrific working relationship with a local peninsula-based small um, RTO, as they're called. Uh, and uh, we've uh, we've kept it going, but only at a small scale. So we're ramping that up to really sort of putting the call out there um, for people who uh, perhaps have had an interest in working in this field, have uh, most certainly got some experience. So usually it's personal experience. It's often people that have a family member or an extended family member who has a disability or is elderly and frail and needs some extra support and they've been involved in that support. Um, and, and obviously the other quality we're looking for is the right temperament because this is this is the key. Well, you, you guys have been heavy on that in the past and you've got quite a lot of experience your nursing background as well, Warren, and mm. I think this is one of the keys to probably the uh, the success of Aftercare Australasia. Um, it's saying a couple of things, isn't it? One, one of course, RTOs now getting into a better space, but also it's probably saying a little bit about your business. But thirdly, and maybe more importantly, it's talking about um, perhaps home care packages um, maybe they're the sort of flavour of the month. It's where the government wants everybody to go. You're providing that service. Are you seeing renewed interest in the wake of the revelations out of the Royal Commission, perhaps, in home care? Uh, yeah, look, it seems to be. Um, what we're seeing is, I mean, there are some negatives associated with that, but it's also, I think, as we've talked about many times, Brennan, it's really going to then become more of a political issue around how is this sector being funded? Um, so what we're seeing is that because of the increased demand, there's a now becoming a real blowout in waiting times again for home care packages. I'm regularly seeing people now who've been assessed as being eligible for a level four uh, package, so that higher level of support, uh, who have only been approved to receive a level two or a level three um, package whilst they're waiting for a level four f- funding to become available. So if you're waiting on your clients, what is that saying about your business model that you can step up and start expansion as well? How do you balance uh, those requirements? Or- well, look, you know, obviously I think for people that, that are entitled to a level four but are only funded at this stage for a level two, it's it's quite a delicate sort of balancing act to make sure that they're really going to be able to get their needs met in some in some cases, people are actually better off just staying with council services um, because they're not going to get a lot more um, on, a, on a level two package. It really depends on the situation and what supports they've got available, what area they're in. Some, some uh, councils uh, seem to have more resources available um, with their sort of, you know, the old-fashioned home help. It's not called home help anymore, but that's what most people think of it as being. Um, so, so, you know, it's something that needs to be weighed up very carefully, but it's definitely having an impact. 
Um, but yeah, look, honestly, we we would be picking up um, two to three home care packages a week at oh, the moment. That's um, huge. Which, which, given that we're we're a small operation, we don't market ourselves extensively. That's pretty much word of mouth. Um, and of course, perhaps this radio program. Of course it is. <laughs> but but uh, it, it says a lot, doesn't it? Two or three packages a week. That's that's yep. fantastic. That's yep. that's very big indeed. Yeah. Um. So where's it going? What 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 is the level of expansion to where could you take and drive the business model? Uh, well, look, I think uh, you know, for us, we're happy to just sort of keep keep going at this pace, and that's that's why we're ramping up the recruitment because that's probably the biggest. Um, I think challenge for all of the existing home care providers is how do they meet the work- workforce requirements. It's a, it's something that I think the Productivity Commission looked into a little while ago and identified some quite significant um, potential gaps. You've got NDIS that's, you know, again, just to remind people, that's $22 billion of funding per annum being put into a space that competes directly with home care packages because it's whilst its focus is people with disabilities it's all about in-home support you know 20 25 30 hours a week of in-home support so it's it's being done at a huge scale um and uh so that's why we're, we're sort of, uh, rather than sort of trying to just simply pick up people that are perhaps already in the workforce where there's a lot of demand, a lot of people, a lot of uh, organisations are just sort of taking the easy route, if you like, and just going, oh, we'll just get someone who's already experienced and trained. We're looking at really investing in workforce development. It's investing in the local community, obviously, and creating opportunities for people. Um, and as I was saying, it's, it's really about what... We're looking at for people that have got good character and because there's a, a lot of trust and responsibility in these sorts of roles, but also people that have got the right temperament where they're, they're flexible in their thinking, they like flexibility in their work. Um, I, I was actually saying to a, a client the other day who was oh, perhaps unhappy that uh, some of her workers couldn't quite get the hang of her coffee machine because she loves her coffee. And, uh, and that's great. We, we appreciate that that's important. Um, but she was frustrated because she said, oh, whenever I've got a new carer, I have to train them to work out how my coffee machine works. And she had a slightly unusual, pretty upmarket, I have to say, coffee machine, Brendan. And uh, as I was trying to explain to her, with her carers, you sort of have to, uh, you know, have a little bit of sympathy for them because... Unlike most workplaces where you might go to one place and you have one coffee machine or one device that you have to operate and you learn how to use it, they have uh, our carers have 20 workplaces <clears throat> where they might have to know 20 different coffee machines and 20 different uh, tastes in coffee and how people like it made and and uh, all of that. It's, there's a lot of detail yeah, in Yeah, but that. you see, if you're drilling down to that level, that's the type of service that I'm sure people are really enjoying very much and it probably says a lot about why you're in this expansion mode as well. Um, obviously, the government's sort of supporting you long term in terms of where you, you aspirationally you want to go and it's going to be very interesting to see where you say, well, that's it, we can't expand any further. But again, you talk about the local product down here in the Mornington Peninsula, and I think people would be really resonating with that as well. Mm, yeah, look, it's you know, again, this is something that comes up quite frequently. I've got uh, 
clients are older people who are saying perhaps receiving another service and they say one of the frustrations is that they've got people you know, driving for an hour um, from from a long way away um, to, to provide the service so they don't know anything about the local shops, they don't know anything about the activities that are going on in the local area. And uh, it's great to have people that have got that local knowledge and they can sometimes say, oh, look, you know, when you're doing your shopping, I saw this fantastic sale on at the, at the butchers the other day and uh, you're interested in that, why don't we go down and have a look at that? And uh, local knowledge is, uh, you know, adds a lot of value. And that's, and that's what we're all about here as well, Warren Haynes, <laughs> of course, because it is the local story and is the local knowledge and it's all about local, local, local. And we're speaking to Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia who, of course, puts together some fantastic packages. Moving into, has just moved into new premises as well mm-hmm. and obviously this expansion is um, really the flavour of the month at the moment. Okay so while all this has been going on of course in the bigger national picture there have been some revelations as well. People being doped to the eyeballs up to 200 days in a semi-comatose position. Other people wanting to be making depositions and presentations to the Royal Commission and being prevented from doing so up in Darwin. Mm-hmm. I mean the mess uh, that is being uncovered seems to continue yeah unfortunately and and again look as as someone that works in the industry i think the thing that's frustrating at times is you look at these these um these issues that are being raised and you go that's in my view sorry i'll go back a step often what you're hearing as an explanation is it's all about cost you know, oh, it's too expensive or, you know, the, the operator's being too greedy in terms of wanting to maximise their profit. And and we look at the, a lot of these issues and go, there are solutions out there, Brendan, you know, and, and it just seems as though in all of the negativity around this, there's often not a lot of talk about, well, well how do we solve these problems? And so classic example, um, which, was, which was the gentleman that was a bit frustrated about missing the deadline to be able to then present um, to the uh, Royal to Commission. the Royal Commission in Darwin. Uh, you know, he was saying that there were there were issues around uh, so safety and well-being for his uh, his father um, in a nursing home in Darwin, and and unfortunately, uh, this person tended to sort of wander at night time, and and there was some some what sounded to me as a very sort of clunky solutions that were being put in place. He wanted rails, safety rails on the bed to um, prevent this person from getting out and getting into getting themselves into mischief, and and the uh, the facility concerned was saying no 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 our policy is you can't have those and it sounds a bit silly but there's actually quite good um, clinical reasons why it's generally not recommended these days to have rails and that is because um, people who have uh, perhaps a level of dementia are can get confused and not recognize that those barriers are there for their safety and uh, go to great lengths to clamber over the barriers, which then means they fall from a greater height um, down the bed onto the floor. But it's kind of missing the point. You know, the point is, uh, it's been there's been hospital beds around for years now, and in fact, the good facilities would have these as their standard, um, you know, bed right through the whole facility that go right down to floor level. So for people that tend to wander and clamber around who might need some sort of um, barrier to deter them from getting out, um, it's still possible to do that. But you just have to set the floor, uh, the bed height down to floor level so that if they do climb out, 
They're not falling. There's, there's nowhere to go. They're already, they're already right down at bed. But maybe making an assumption that people are prepared to make individual assessments about individual patients. And what we're doing is I think we're looking at a group solution or a bottom line solution here. Right? Yeah, look, you're probably right, Brent. And unfortunately, uh, we do see this sort of one-size-fits-all approach. Mm. And I guess, um, I guess you're highlighting that that's just not part of our thinking at all. You, you have a general set of... Um, uh, risks that you would identify, but how you solve those risks is very much through problem solving the specifics of the problem in their home for that person with their level of skill and with the resources. And that's that why people got. are tending to and wanting to endorse the product that you have rather than perhaps get into these aged care facilities or staying out of them as long as possible and keeping a, an element of independence and working with aged care providers mm. to give them that uh, lifestyle and some options that they probably want. Look, we find it's not that complicated to do though. It it puzzles me a little bit as to, you know, why this one size... Because you do see it in some home care providers too, Brandon, where they have this one size fits all. Um, you know, they'll say, you know, very much, you know, well, we just simply point blank don't do this or we do do that or you have to have this piece of equipment. Now, we would say... Yes, certainly there's bits of equipment that are recommended and, and there, is a, there is a point at which you go, look, that, that is just genuinely unsafe. But there's, there's plenty of resources to get an occupational therapist in, for instance, who's an expert on this, and they will spend some time just looking at that one individual, as I said, and going through it carefully. And they can often come up with a quite a workable compromise that might, uh, you know, get that balance between keeping the person active so that they, you know, it's the old move it or lose it, um, keeping them active so that they keep their as much independence as possible, but also making sure that they're doing it in a way that's safe for them and safe for our carers, and and just as importantly, safe for their family members. We we see family members sort of out of a sense of duty or obligation, you know, going that extra mile and perhaps not having the knowledge in the industry, they're the ones that often end up injuring themselves. And uh, we'll come in with our workers and and uh, and we have a conversation and then they go, oh, yeah, no, my son's injured his back and my daughter's injured their back and my husband's injured his back and it's all, you know, doing the doing the wrong thing and not having the right support. But you get the right support in there, and there's just some incredible stuff out there, Brendan. I'm sure there is. Um, where is the Royal Commission up to at this stage? We've uh, done the NT. Where are we up to next? And interim reports aren't too far away. Yeah, I believe that's the case. Um, look, I, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest, where we're going now. It's sort of just been rumbling along for a while, and I guess uh, there's been a lot of distraction going on too with this business with uh, with Earl Haven. The for those of you that can't remember, you know, this is the nursing home up in the Gold Coast that uh, that closed down abruptly and there were all kinds of concerns about um, the residents there being sort of, you know, left in the lurch and having to be moved out in the middle of the night into all kinds of temporary accommodation. It was quite catastrophic. Um, one of the things that's come out of that is that the Queensland Government has now announced that they're going to make a, a mandatory 50% nursing ratio in all of the state-run um, aged care homes. Now, I don't know what number that is. It's often not a very large number these days in most um, most states, but I'm not familiar specifically with Queensland. But that's a that's a huge change, and um, 
oh, I'd have to say it's probably something that only a state government could afford to do, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but that's a, that's a really big thing. And that, I think that will put a lot of pressure on their, you know, this, this long-standing issue around actually having ratios of staffing and ratios of qualifications uh, for people um, providing the supports in aged care homes. Because, again, as we've mentioned previously, it's quite astonishing that there just simply are no ratios. It's up to the, the operator to make their own judgment as to whether, you know, so they might decide, oh, well, we only want one staff person for 50 patients at night, for instance. You you might expect that there could be some expectation of auditing as well because if people are just going to sort of start closing doors in the midnight hours and throwing people out wherever, I mean, there has to be some sort of expectation of service, surely. Yeah, look, again, it... From what I can gather, it does seem like a fairly unique circumstance. It's certainly not something that you hear of as being very common. It's it's far more common that it's well known that organisations are struggling financially for an extended period of time and, and um, you know, it's very rare that things get to this sort of crisis point. I certainly can't recall hearing of it in the last sort of four or five years um, anything similar to that. That is Queensland. Down here in Victoria on the Mornington Peninsula, Aftercare Australasia is recruiting and uh, they're going from strength to strength and Warren uh, drops by every couple of weeks to come in and have a bit of an attitude to us. Warren, thank you so much indeed. Always very enlightening and uh, we'll catch up with you very, very soon. In the meantime, if we want to catch up with you and maybe have a bit of a natter, a couple of uh, the audience members uh, do want to have a bit of a chat, how do they contact you? Uh, look, uh, we're always happy for them to just call. It's a, you know, a, a local call cost um, number, 1300 464663, and happy to have a chat with them about whatever concerns uh, they might have or any information thereafter. As I often say to people, you know, we're not a high-pressure sales organisation. We're not driven by that. It's really about making sure we're the right match for what people are looking for and that they're comfortable with what we're offering. So more than happy to sort of talk a bit more broadly about how things work in the in the sector and what to look for if they're comparing, you know, our product, our offerings with uh, with other providers. And um, you know, if they want a bit, for me to come out and have a have a more direct, in depth conversation, always happy to do that as well. Just about time for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll catch up with Age Stage producer and reporter Cheryl Brody. That's on the other side of the... Hi and welcome to the Age Stage. It's Cheryl Brody again with you. And today I've got a very special guest, Professor Srikanth. Um, Professor Srikanth is a, a specialist in geriatric medicine and dementia care. He holds the position of Professor of medicine at Monash University and also Peninsula Health. Welcome to the show. Hi Cheryl, thank you. I enjoy being here. So today we're talking about a research project that is currently underway, is that right? Yes, that's right, on dementia. On dementia, exactly. So tell me what you anticipate the main findings would be from the research project Cheryl, I think this is an opportunity for us to really get a handle on how big the problem is of dementia. So there are about 400,000 people living in Australia with the problem, and it's a pretty significant problem for those affected. But what we really need to know is the exact numbers of people living 
and how much that would be going into the future. Right. For example, now we're told that about 400,000 people are living with dementia, but that number is expected to triple by 2050. Now, this is based on a guesstimate, so to speak. Yes, I see. It's a guess. Well, what we're trying to do is develop methods to use routinely collected health information to more accurately know what the number of people living with dementia are and how many are expected to be there going into the future. And that's going to be useful for us and the government and health policy makers to really work out what's needed to help people with dementia. Okay, that's interesting. So this study is relative to the residents um, of the Mornington Peninsula? Correct. So we, we are doing this first in the Mornington Peninsula as a pilot to try and be a test bed to then expand out into the country. The reason why we chose the Mornington Peninsula is obviously we're based at the peninsula, um, but it's also quite a unique spot. It's geographically defined. There is a large number of people over the age of 65 living in um, in the Mornington Peninsula. In fact, some parts of the peninsula, the number of people living over 65 is over 30%, which sure. is some of the highest in the country. Okay. And um, Professor Srikanth, our listeners tend to be people that uh, might know uh, someone who is currently clinically diagnosed with dementia or Uh, perhaps Alzheimer's. So can you just touch on briefly what the difference would be between an Alzheimer's diagnosis and a dementia diagnosis? Yeah, sure. I think this is a question that people often grapple with, not just people affected by it, but even the physician community. Yes. In the past, we've thought of dementia in several different ways, and Alzheimer's is one name given to it. But now we know from much work done overseas and in Australia that dementia is a condition that a person experiences when they start losing their ability in memory and other cognitive abilities. And there are several reasons why this might happen. For example, the changes in the brain that occur could be a combination of what's seen in so-called Alzheimer's pathology where certain proteins get deposited in the brain over time, but also people can have disease of blood vessels, which they don't know about, Right. plus other things as well. So in effect, what happens is as people live longer and longer, their brains can accumulate these changes right. and lead them to develop symptoms of dementia. Okay. So the fact that we, we um, are living longer lives and um, somewhat fortunate in comparison to other people in the world means that we are more predisposed to illnesses such as uh, dementia. Is that right? Absolutely right. So if you go back about 50 or 60 years, many people would, would have been dying by the age of 60 or 70 from many causes such as trauma or cardiovascular disease, heart disease. But now those things are better treated and prevented. So people live longer, and as people live longer, their brains have more time to accumulate these changes, Okay. and some people express symptoms and live with dementia. Sure. So would um, an outcome of this study um, potentially look at um, better treatments for management of dementia? I think the outcome of this study will give policymakers and the government the real information that's required 
to ensure that people living with dementia have adequate care and services. Some of that might be with treatment itself, but a large part of it is support that they need while living with the problem. Right. Okay. Yeah, family support. And um, at the moment, what sort of family support would you recommend? Look, it's really based on individual person's needs. Some people may have quite a strong family network that help care for them and look after them. And often people can live in their own environments if they have that kind of support. But some people don't have family and live in isolation. And that's where we need to step in to ensure that they're supported in their own environment as best as possible. Okay. And that would mean you know, making use of home care packages and other kinds of support. Right. And considering nursing home care only at the very end if if absolutely required. Yes. And that would be the way to go. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Is there a website that our listeners can refer to? For the project itself, over the next coming months, we'll be developing a website that we can refer people to and we will be approaching residents of uh, the peninsula to be part of the project. But in terms of acquiring information about dementia generally, I would recommend that your listeners go to the Dementia Australia website, which is dementia.org.au, and that would usually have quite a bit of information about dementia for them. Monash University Professor Valande Shrikanth speaking there to our reporter Cheryl Brody. When we come back, we ask the question, is the LP record a beautiful thing of history, or is there more to it than just that? A special BBC report after the break. You're tuned to The Age Stage this Thursday morning right here on RPPFM. Great to have your company. I'm Brendan Telfer. Well, here's a question that the BBC asked its Radio 4 listeners this week. When was the last time you sat down and listened through an entire LP record? A new book by the British author David Hepworth claims that these days people no longer have the time or the inclination to listen to the LP in its entirety. In fact, it is, in his opinion, a dying art form. So according to the BBC, we just simply don't uh, have the time anymore. We sample, we listen, we skip through, we skim, but never do we listen to LPs these days. Well, David Hepworth was at the Port Elliot Festival in Cornwall last weekend, so the BBC sent along their reporter, Paul Moss, to test out the theory on festival goers. On a sunny afternoon in a field in Cornwall, I tried to persuade a few people at the Port Elliot Festival to sit down for a moment and to listen to some music. In this case, it was the 1969 Beatles release, Abbey Road. For true fans, Abbey Road isn't just a collection of great songs, it's an integrated whole with a beginning, middle and an ending. In other words, it's a real album. There's just something very relaxing about sitting down, putting on the LP or the CD and just knowing you're just going to listen to it all the way through. And for me, there are some LPs that are very much of a piece. So there's maybe a theme to them and it goes, you know, you have to listen from beginning to end. That was one of the few positive reactions I got. Most weren't so keen on the idea of listening to an album all the way through. The suggestion, apparently about as probable these days, as listening to the complete works of Wagner on a Sony Walkman. How often would you do this, sit and listen to a whole album? Never, no. Um, I download all my music and it's single songs normally. How about you? 
Not anymore, no. It's a time constraint normally, isn't it? So sit and listen to old album, no, not anymore, no. Long form record comes to maturity very quickly. In a talk given at the Port Elliot Festival, the music writer David Hepworth argued that if people do stop listening to albums, a central element of our culture will have disappeared. Great LPs are written in our hearts, completely imprinted on you, every pop and click. David Hepworth used to edit the magazine Smash Hits, and his new book has the arresting title A Fabulous Creation – how the LP saved our lives. So I asked him to justify this rather bold claim. The long playing record was the single most exciting thing in the lives of, uh, of a lot of us because it was played on a machine that was tethered in the corner of your living room and it required a certain amount of commitment to commune with that machine. People nowadays don't talk about LPs anymore, they talk about tunes. If they're kind of little pellets guaranteed to give you a certain hit... Are you sure you're not being just nostalgic for, for another era? I mean, after all, CDs, downloads, you still can get a whole album. But we listen to music nowadays the same way that we do everything, which is with one finger poised on the button, which can take us away from it. Changing a track on an LP record was a hazardous business. You know, you might scratch the record. It was difficult to do. Nowadays, you're completely in charge of either a CD or a download or a stream and so the minute, the second that it fails to live up to your expectations, you click away. And yet there is still an enduring image of LP devotees, superannuated survivors of the 1960s and 70s, perhaps with a habit of telling you how nothing's been the same since Bob Dylan went electric. But in fact, I did manage to find fans at the festival with a bit more up-to-date taste and who were prepared to sit for a bit and listen to some music with me. This is Like a Prayer, the title track from Madonna's album, and I'm just infused with joy listening to this. I almost feel like I'm 16 again. My name is Viv Groskop. I'm a writer and comedian. I was in my mid-teens when I bought this album, and I really wanted to break away from my parents and from my home life. This album really expresses something free and, and rebellious. It's a kind of a, a, a joyous rebellion. Some people think it's quite a blokey anorexia sort of thing to go on about albums you you clearly don't feel that I do think you need to have a certain kind of curiosity nowadays to appreciate the idea of an album because I think in some ways now it all becomes overly individualized so you're encouraged to build your own albums by building a playlist but I almost like the rebellious idea of you know no you cannot build your own album you must listen to the album as the artist dictated it well, I've just come down to a spot by the river at the festival where people are sitting around, some of them listening to music, and I've got with me Rupert Lord. Now, Rupert, I gather you put heavy pressure on your eight-year-old son to make him listen to a whole album. I said to him that he could play his Nintendo Switch, and I said he could play it for half-hour bursts as long as he listened to whole albums in between. So, so what, what album did you inflict on him? I, I made him listen <laughs> to uh, Hunky Dory by David Bowie. We've got Isaac sitting here. Isaac, how was it for you listening to a whole album from beginning to end? Um, it was worth it if I got to play a game after. Well, that wasn't the idea. The idea was you might actually enjoy it. I did enjoy it quite a bit. 
and if you said David Bowie's songs were boring, you probably hadn't listened to all of the album. And our thanks to the BBC, Radio 4, reporter Paul Moss, and uh, that report from the UK. And that just about wraps us up for this edition of The Age Stage This Week. I'm Brendan Telfer. Uh, Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and Australian Unity. And also, of course, a special thanks to our guest, Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia, Monash University Professor Valande Shrikanth, and, of course, our Age Stage Special Reporter, Cheryl Brody, and, of course, uh, Paul Verstige. Also, thanks, of course, to the BBC, Paul Moss and Radio 4 for their piece on the LP record. I am Brendan Telfer. We will be back same time next week right here on RPPFM when we present... The age stage. Stay safe. Across the peninsula, 98.7, 98.3, RPPFM.